You are now listening to the March 17th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. We will listen to a praise song and begin our program with Christianese 101. This is Don Chung, and I'm the host of this program, Christianese 101. Last week, we learned about common but foreign groups of people. This week, we'll again be learning about another group of people that are spoken of many times in the Bible, but still not commonly known, the prophets. Prophets see the visions and hear the revelation of God and proceed to proclaim it to all the people. In the Old Testament times, there are three groups of people that are hand-selected by God to hear the messages. Prophets, kings, and priests. These people are hand-selected by God and have a special role. 
First, the priests went out before the Lord on behalf of the Israelites. On the other hand, the prophets went out before the people on behalf of God himself. The word prophet in Hebrew is nabi, and it means a spokesman or a speaker. In these times, God did not speak directly to his people, and instead, he used prophets to speak. This included constantly warning people to turn away from their sins, or else they would perish. God's sincere love towards his people was deterred by their sins. Therefore, the prophets conveyed God's desperate heart to his people. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 9 says, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. The prophet spoke God's word without personal contempt or bias. Whenever the Israelites sinned, God would send a prophet to show the path of God. Because of this, they suffered much hate and contempt from the Israelites. One example will be Jeremiah. He got a message from God to tell the Israelites to repent and was widely mocked for it. However, not all prophets were speaking the word of God. Some people only spoke good things and gained popularity as to reap the benefits. This is what we call a false prophet. They don't speak God's word, but instead pick and choose in order to appeal to the Israelites. This is a very dreaded and foreboding thing that we all should be in the lookout for because these false prophets will pull us away from God using His name in vain, and you'll end up suffering alongside with them. Jeremiah 27.15 states that I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they are prophesying falsely in my name, with the result that I will drive you out and you will perish, you and the prophets who are prophesying to you. Even Jesus warns us many times to be on the lookout for these false prophets that will arise and mislead many away from the faith. Whenever true prophets called by God share the warning to repent their sins, people who accept it will be blessed. Therefore, the people who mock these messages will become people who have turned their backs on God. Additionally, the ones who believe and obey false prophets will perish. I hope that through the prophets and the scripture, we can have a steadfast and unfading faith in the Lord. See you next week. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me See, on the portals he's waiting and watching Watching
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program 
may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Well, today we begin a brand new lesson. It's a two-part series on resisting temptation. And this teaching is from the series called The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. And by God's grace, this book will be released this summer. I'll keep you up to date on that. The Sex Spiral is a set of awareness triggers of where you are in the addiction to pornography. And see, it's when you know where you are, when you have a map you can follow, it's only then can you choose to exit your addiction. And you can exit in multiple different ways. You know, resistance is a funny thing. We tend to think that the better I am at resisting pornography, well, or or any sin for that matter, the holier I must be. And the opposite is also true. If I don't win here, if I don't resist at this moment, at this trigger inside the sex spiral, well, then I think I'm not holy enough. Those are both lies. And in today's podcast, you're going to find out why. So in this podcast, you're going to learn, number one, a biblical definition of resistance. Number two, how to resist temptation correctly and biblically. And number three, the biggest mistake we make while trying to resist pornography. So let's get started with today's lesson. This is tithing your devotional time. Trigger number three from last week, temptation. Quick review. The Greek word for temptation, anybody remember what it was? You Greek scholars, you. Parosmos. Remember that? Parosmos. Parosmos is a, a neutral word. It can either mean a, a testing for good or it can be a temptation for evil. And remember, from God's viewpoint, this is a test. But from Satan's viewpoint, this is a temptation. So in other words, God gives you the opportunity to prove that you're growing in purity by testing. But from the demonic standpoint, it's a way to prove your unworthiness. It's a way to trip you up uh, by a temptation. So Satan intends it for evil while God intends it for good. So my encouragement to you, if you remember from last week, is to embrace the test. Work the plan, move through the test to experience the freedom that God has, has promised you guys. So here we are in the spiral. If you want to take a look at your, the first page on your binders, you can do that too. Awareness, this is the very first thought that comes to mind that you are susceptible. You are aware that you need to do something. If you do not confess, flee, pray, most likely you will move down into unhealthy self-thoughts which is the subconscious stuff that we talked about, the shame issues. Once again, I can confess, flee, pray. If I don't do that, then that's where the temptation comes in. That's the actual desire to do something. That's the desire for me to move forward and act out. And then tonight, we're going to talk about resistance. This idea of what we hear words like resist in God's words. We think standing strong, but... Um, Let's take a a deeper look into what that really means for tonight. Uh, Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Put on, that's this idea of clothing. So put on the whole armor of God that you can stand against. That means to endure or withstand. The problem in dealing with habitual sin like pornography and using a verse like this is that for recovery, we're not really using the whole counsel of God. Um, Putting on the full armor of God speaks to spending time with the Lord, reading and listening and learning during your devotional time. This is a time of preparation. So think of of your acronym PLOW, P-L-O-W, pray, listen, obedience or obey, and then work. So how do you prepare to resist the temptation? How do you prepare to resist the temptation? This idea of resisting inside the temptation, us pushing against one another like this, does no good when we're right here at the resistance. This idea of us actually resisting and focusing in on what's going on right here with this temptation. How good is that going to do you at that moment? Is it going to do you any good? Because all you're doing is all your effort is right here. You're, okay, God, I just, I need to do something. I need to, what's that verse again? Oh, I really don't want to call, but I will pray. And I need, and all this stuff is going on, right? So instead of us getting off balance, how about we get the actual trigger off balance? As long as I actually confess, flee, or pray, and simply when I just took just a little bit and used his own momentum out of my way, then I can move through the trigger. That's the whole idea. Instead of just face-to-face with the trigger, you're going to take it and you're actually going to move through it. You're not going to go around it. You have to go through it. It's very important to understand is that you have to experience it. Resisting correctly takes years of practice and preparation. This test is coming for you. You're not going to stop it, but you can resist it. When we use the momentum of the test itself against itself by getting it off balance instead of us, we do this by fleeing, confessing, or praying. Does that make sense? We're either going to get off balance or the trigger itself is going to get off balance. Um, taking every thought captive is just a little bit different. I mean, you, you want, to me, that, that means that I'm, I've got a little bit more time than instead of being actually inside the spiral. So taking every thought captive, laying it at the foot of the cross is what we ultimately want to do. We want to purify that thought. So it may be just a little bit different. What, what I'm suggesting here is that you actually, because this right here, this resistance Depending on where you are, how your day is, what you're feeling, it may be little resistance or it may be, man, I'm, I'm at three weeks. I really need to get to four weeks. I, I know I can do four weeks with being clean. I know I can do it. I know what I can do it. I can. And you're not. If you're in that mindset, you're going to fail. You lose fast. Right. Because you're, because you're so focused in on the sin instead of getting your eyes and completely forget about it and then engaging inside community. So the practice and the preparation of resistance is not done while the test is happening. That's really important to understand. It's not here. This is not what that verse is talking about. The, the practice and the preparation is during your, your devotional time. So let me, let me suggest this idea to you, and I've mentioned it before, this, this idea of tithing your time. 
just as God wants us to give the, the first 10% of our finances to Him as an offering for His provisions, learning to tie the first 10% of your day is just as important. So, for example, let's say you're working eight hours. You would literally schedule or you would tithe 48 minutes in the morning as your devotional time, right? So you've got eight hours, that's 480 minutes times 10%. So it's 48 minutes. So let's think about this for a second. How many hours in a week? So you've got, a, you've got all of us in here of 168 hours, right? So how much time do we spend here at the group? 1.5, right? Spend an hour and a half here. How much is your Devo time? I'll be gracious and give you guys an hour, right? Are you guys doing that? Spend an hour a day already? If you're listening to podcast, what is that, half hour a piece? So about three hours? If you're doing that six days a week? What about, so you're working? Let's just say 50, fair enough. What about church activities, other small groups? Three? Fair enough. What about entertainment and TV and movies? That's exactly what I put down. Two hours a day. And then sleeping, I put 56. So out of all these things, so we've got, uh, we've got 1.5. We've got your Devo, your podcast, and your group partner time. So 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 13, 14, so almost 15 hours. So 15 out of 168. Now, I'm not saying this is 10%. I'm just saying the Devo time itself. My point, though, here is that we've got 168 hours total. And of those 168 hours, we've got 15 that we can account for, which is the biggest problem in your life. If we phrase it that way, is this actually enough time compared to all these other things going on for you to become healthy and whole. So, you know, this is just this idea of when the Apostle Paul talks about how do you pray without ceasing? How do you do something like that? How are you always in prayer? It's just all this always learning as we're growing in the Lord to just keep this stuff in the back of your mind. Because if we, and we as men, we're really good at separating all this stuff. I got work and then I got to get, I get done at 6 or 6.30, and then I got to get something to eat, and then I got to get the group on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, and then I can think about Jesus. Yeah? That's how we think, right? We're all compartmentalized. And all I'm showing you guys tonight is how important this time right here is. I've learned over the past several years how important that devotional time really is with the Lord. To be able to spend quality time listening to the Lord, to, to read His Word, to journal things out, and to worship. You know, to tithe this time as the first offering to Him, man, it's, it's just so sweet, and it really will change your life. And just like I mentioned in the lesson, this is where the heavy lifting is done, especially in this trigger of resistance. I wanted to introduce you to a new acronym that I've been using for the past year, and it's PLOW. P-L-O-W. The P stands for prayer or presence. You want to enter into the presence of the Lord. L is listening, listening to him, not just telling him what to do, uh, like I've done most all of my life. The O is for obedience, to actually listen and obey what he says, because his, 
his commands are not a burden. His yoke is light. His, his life is free. And then lastly, W is the actual work that we do. So plow, P-L-O-W, prayer and presence, listening, obedience, and work. I'll have a lot more on this concept in, in upcoming podcasts as the, the Purity Plan workbooks are released, but you can see that pattern there, right? You can see if you enter into the presence of the Lord, if you're listening to him and then obeying what he says, and it's an obedience out of love, not out of obligation, and then we work. And that's where the heavy lifting is done, inside the presence of the Lord. You know, part of the obedience and work section of that acronym is having both an offensive and defensive plan for sexual purity. And when it comes to protecting yourself and your family, your home, along with your business, that plan includes filtering and accountability on all of your uh, digital devices. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our weekly community group. It's for everybody. Men, women, husbands, wives, single, divorced, everyone is welcome. And you're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. You can rate this show on iTunes and email me your questions. I would love to respond to those. Just visit DustinDanielsRadio.com. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says the kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that power is in the very name. It's in the shed blood of Jesus Christ.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast and app. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is, Behold His Jealousy, based on Psalms 79. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Let's read Psalm chapter 79. Let me me set up the context here. This psalm was written right after the destruction of Jerusalem that described God's protection of Jerusalem from the Assyrians. Then years later, because God's people persisted in sin, the Babylonians came, attacked the city, and destroyed it completely. And this psalm is written from the perspective of a few people. Most were taken away into exile, but a few people were left behind alive, totally surrounded by ruins. Just imagine being in a war-torn scene totally ravaged city, massive destruction, bodies everywhere. This is a hard, emotionally raw psalm. And look for the mention of the jealousy of God in it. Psalms chapter 79, verse 1. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We've become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember us against our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Did you see all the exclamation points? Emotionally raw. And you see verse five. How long, O Lord, will your jealousy burn like fire? Here's the two questions I want to ask. One, what does it mean for God to be jealous? And then two, why does that matter for our lives? 
So I'm going I'm to try to answer those two questions based on this psalm, all of Scripture, in the next few minutes. So if you're taking notes, like these two questions. What does it mean for God to be jealous? Why does that matter for our lives? The first, what does it mean for God to be jealous? This text, alongside all of Scripture, teaches God's jealousy means two things. One, for God to be jealous means that God is zealous for his glory. God is zealous for his glory. That's what it means for God to be jealous. Now, I use the word zealous here because both Old Testament and New Testament, when we see the word jealousy, it's sometimes translated zeal. So jealousy is zeal for something. So what is God zealous for? And the answer, this psalm, all of Scripture gives us, is that God is zealous for his own glory. This psalmist knows this. Look at how he begins the psalm. In verse 1, he says, Amidst all this disaster, the nations have come, he starts to say, into your inheritance. They've defiled your holy temple. They've laid Jerusalem, which is your holy city, in ruins. They've given up the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. So notice, the psalmist isn't just looking at this disaster from a human perspective. He's looking at it from a divine perspective. Even when he cries out for grace from God, you jump down to verse 9. He's crying out for help. He says, help us, O God of our salvation. Why? For the glory of your name do this. Deliver us, atone for our sins for your name's sake. Verse 10, why should the nations say, where is their God? The nations, the psalmist says, are questioning you, O God. They're questioning your power, your presence with your people. The psalmist knows God is zealous for his glory, which is what we see all over Scripture when it comes to the jealousy of God. In fact, hold your place here in Psalm 79 and turn with me back to the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 20. You got to see this. So second book in the Bible, this is the first time we see the jealousy of God explicitly mentioned. And it's right at the top of the Ten Commandments. So God has brought his people to Mount Sinai to enter into a covenant relationship with them, like a marriage relationship. And he's giving his word to them. And listen to what he says. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. So this is the Ten Commandments in the Bible. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First commandment. Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath, that's in the water under the earth. Here it is, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So see this truth from the very beginning of the Bible, from the top of the Ten Commandments. God desires and deserves all glory. There's only one true God. And because he alone is God, he is jealous for all worship as God. He desires it. He's jealous for his own worship. Now, as soon as I say that, I realize that many of us might recoil at that because we inherently almost think it's wrong for anybody to be jealous for their own worship? I mean, we're repulsed by anybody who would dare to think they deserve worship. If I walked in here today and said, you should worship me, you would say, 
you can take a hike. Right? Why? Because I don't deserve worship. I'm totally deceived if I think I deserve it. But not God. No, God is not deceived. God knows he deserves all glory. Because there's no other God, period. He's the only God who's worthy of all worship in all the world, which means it's not wrong. It's altogether right for God to desire his own glory, for God to desire his own worship, exaltation. And if it, if it rubs you wrong in any way, for God to desire to exalt himself, I would just ask you the follow-up question. Well, who else would you rather him exalt? You? Someone, something else? No, because if at any point God were to exalt someone or something else, he would no longer be the God who's worthy of all exaltation, and he is. That's what it means for him to be God. It means he deserves all glory and therefore desires all glory. He's zealous for his glory. In fact, turn a couple pages over here in Exodus to chapter 34. All the references to God's jealousy in Scripture are grounded in God's zeal for his glory. In chapter 34, God's talking about when he brings his people into the promised land. And this land at that time was filled with all kinds of pagan nations that were all worshiping all kinds of false gods. And so God gives his people instructions for what they're to do when they get there. Exodus chapter 34, verse 13, he says, about these altars to false gods, you shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is what? Jealous is a jealous God. His name is jealous. And it makes sense because there's no one greater than God. So here's the difference. It's wrong for us to want worship because we don't deserve it. It is right for God to want worship because he deserves it. And realizing this is the secret to true worship. This is where we start to see, okay, our jealousy is very different from God's jealousy. On one hand, because he's worthy of worship, but even more. So think about another difference here. When we are jealous, it's oftentimes due to some sort of insecurity in us, or in envy in us. And we see something that someone else has, and we're jealous because we want it. And we see another person's possessions. We see their car, their house. We see another, the way another person looks. We see the skills another person has. We see a lifestyle that someone else has. We want it. Most all of us right now could think of something we want. Think even good things we want that somebody else has. And we're jealous of it. And there's an insecurity in us. But not in God. Get this. God is completely secure. God has no insecurity. There's no envy in God. Why? Because he desires nothing that is bad and everything that is good already belongs to him. God is supremely good. He's supremely glorious. He is not jealous of anything we have because everything good we have comes from him in the first place. God is not jealous of anything because God doesn't need anything. Again, this is where God is so different from us. So we have to think differently about jealousy because not only is God's completely secure, God is also supremely satisfying, which means he knows there is no one better than him. 
God is not some insecure deity that's worried if you worship another little God, you're going to find more joy or fulfillment or satisfaction. No, God knows there is no one, nothing that can ever come close to comparing to the joy and fulfillment and satisfaction that are found in him. Do you see it? God is zealous for his glory because God alone is glorious, period. So that then, so that's first way. What does it mean for God to be jealous? It means he's zealous for his glory. At the same time, so follow this. What does it mean for God to be jealous? So here's the second thing that means. It means that God is zealous for the good of his people. So how does God choose to glorify himself? And the answer is, by showering his goodness on his people whom he loves. So this is from the start of scripture. You just think about Genesis 1 and 2. God creates man and woman in his image to enjoy him as they glorify him with the life he gives them. And they do for a time. But then what happens? They turn. Man and woman say, we don't trust our good and glorious creator, and we're not going to worship him. They turn aside from the security and satisfaction they have in God, and they worship other gods, namely themselves instead. They turn aside from the God who is zealous for their good. At that point, sin enters the world, and it affects every person in all of history, every person born, turning aside from the one true God, following false gods instead. This is evident in every one of our lives all across this room and other campuses. Every one of us has turned aside from the one true God and worshiped other gods, namely ourselves instead. But God, in his mercy, he did not have to do this. He said, you eat of this fruit of this tree, you will surely die. God, in his mercy set in motion a plan to make it possible for sinners who have rejected him to be reconciled to him, to be restored to satisfaction in him. In the Old Testament, the way that story plays out, he calls a particular people to himself. This is Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, his descendants Isaac, Jacob, and the chapters that follow that what becomes known as the people of Israel. God enters into a covenant with them, like a marriage relationship, where God says, I'm going to pour out my love on you in a special way, my blessings, my promises on you, and you're going to demonstrate my love to all the peoples of the earth. And they said, yes, they entered into that covenant marriage relationship with God, committing their lives to him. But before the seal of that covenant even had time to dry, they were already turning aside to fashion a golden calf and bow down and worship it instead. And in this way, their physical idolatry became a picture of spiritual adultery. Like a husband with a wayward wife. This is the story of the Old Testament. God would pour out his love on his people, forgiving them of their sins, drawing them back to him, only to have them turn again and again to idol after idol after idol, the hurt and horror of adultery against the Almighty. Which is exactly what happened in Psalm 79. So you come back to this 
Some, the people of God in Jerusalem, had all the security satisfaction they could ever want in God. Yet they turned aside. They crafted idols with their own hands. They bowed down to worship them instead. Those gods, for reasons obvious to us looking back in history, these crafted wooden idols were not able to provide for them, protect them, lead them, care for them, guide them. Those gods were empty and Idolatry with them led to all sorts of gross immorality around them, eventually bringing this destruction upon them. Their spiritual adultery was like an addiction. You know, like an alcoholic knows that drink will lead to disastrous consequences. They know it's not good for them. They drink it anyway. Spiritual adultery works like this in all of our lives. Every one of us is prone to turn away from the good and satisfying and glorious God to trust in ourselves the things of this world when we know ultimately, inevitably, that will lead to our downfall. Yet we keep drinking. So when you see this picture of the jealousy of God, this is all over scripture. I read it just last week in my time with the Lord in the mornings in Hosea. Like picture God, a husband who loves his wife so much, a husband who possesses all his wife could ever need or ever want. And yet, she turns aside from him and runs around with other men instead. God, in this way, is a jealous husband. Again, not insecure. He's completely secure, supremely satisfying. There's no one that compares with God. And he loves his bride so much. He's so jealous for her good that he will not give up on her, which means he's zealous to bring her back to himself. And that's the picture in Psalm 79. The psalmist knows this. When he cries out in verse 5, how long, O Lord, will your jealousy burn like fire? He knows that the people of God have experienced the consequence of idolatry, spiritual adultery. The worship of these false gods had led to their destruction, even death. The psalmist in that sense knows that they are experiencing what they asked for in worshiping the things of this world. So the psalmist turns back to God in the mire of sin and he cries out for mercy from heaven. And in this cry, he shows us this picture. So follow this. He shows us that God loves his people so much that he cares for them with compassion. This prayer from the beginning, God, see your people slain in the streets. They can't even be buried. He said, we're mocked, derided, totally shamed by Everyone around us, destroyed in every way possible, physically, politically, socially, economically, spiritually. So what does he say in verse 8? The cry, let your compassion come speedily to meet us. In other words, hurry, God, help us. Verse 9, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name deliver us, atone for our sins. The psalmist knows that the reason why they're in despair is because they've sinned against a holy God turned aside to false gods. And so the only way to be restored is to have sins covered over. And the psalmist knows that God loves his people so much that he saves them from their sin. He's the God of salvation. Deliver us, save us. Love that word. Psalm 79, that word deliver, it literally means to snatch the prey out of a predator's mouth. The people of God caught in the clutch of sin. 
and crying out, Lord, get us out, get us out. Atone for our sins. That word atone means cover over our sins, which is where this whole story goes to a whole other level because in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices that were offered to atone for sins. The day of atonement, when the high priest would offer a sacrifice in the place of sinners to show that the penalty for sin, death, had been paid by a sacrifice covering over the sins of the people. They would offer that sacrifice over and over and over again, year after year after year. But that whole picture in the Old Testament was only intended to set the stage for the New Testament when Jesus would come and he would sacrifice himself once and for all at the cross to make salvation possible for sinners be reconciled to a holy God. So this is the greatest news in all the world to any sinner anywhere. God has made a way for all your sins to be covered over. And I urge you, if you have never cried out for God to cover over your sins, forgive you of your sins by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross in your place, I urge you to do that today. Let today be the day where you, by faith in Jesus, are reconciled to God, restored to God. You today can be forgiven of all your sins by repenting, turning from your sin yourself, and trusting in him. God loves his people so much that he makes a way to save them from their sin, and not just save them from their sin. God loves his people so much that he sustains them in their suffering. The psalmist goes on, he says in verse 11, let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Oh, do you see God's jealous love here? Like the psalmist knows God loves his people so much he will not leave them alone in suffering. According to his great power, he will preserve them. To every person in this room and other campuses walking through suffering right now in your life and different ways. I was praying with somebody last night that just found out they have cancer. Others I know are walking through the middle of it. All the pain that involves and uncertainty. And others, so many different circumstances represented by the thousands of people right now who are hearing this word from God. So hear this word from God, especially if you're walking through challenges, trials, suffering, know this. If you have trusted in Christ, been reconciled to God, God is your husband. And this imagery, he's a faithful husband and he will not abandon you in your suffering. Amidst whatever you're walking through, know that according to his great power, he will preserve you. He's committed to preserving you, to providing for you, to helping you, to sustaining you in your suffering. And ultimately, so follow this, God loves his people so much that he leads them to eternal life. Oh, look at how the psalm ends. The psalm with so much despair, the psalmist looks up and he says, well, we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Did you hear that? God is a jealous God, a zealous husband who loves his bride and will lead his people in such a way that they will never, ever, ever, for all of eternity, ever run out of reasons to give him thanksgiving and praise. I think about Sutherland Springs, that old picture, 
people say, where is there a hope in that? And I grant, that picture seems so hopeless if this life is all there is. Hopeless if a mad shooter has the last word. But ladies and gentlemen, no shooter will have the last word. God will have the last word. And for all who've trusted in him, he will lead them to eternal life. Eternal life. Do you see it? What does it mean for God to be jealous? It means that God is zealous for his glory. And at the same time, God is zealous for the good of his people. Both. So why does that matter for our lives? That changes everything about our lives. Think about it. Two exhortations that I hope are obvious in case they're not. Let me make them clear. One, because God is jealous, I exhort you, live with zeal for his glory. Every one of you, me, like we must, every one of us, this is the word of God, we must live with zeal for the glory of God. God alone deserves all glory and as such God desires all glory. So we must, we must, it's imperative for us, we must turn aside daily from all false gods, all idols in this world, whether it's handcrafted wooden figures that might be in someone's home or far more subtle yet just as sinful gods of money, sex, success, sports, entertainment, Family, health, wealth, food, position, power, pleasure, comfort, acclaim. The list could go on and on of ways we worship, even good things in this world. Places we put our trust instead of in our God. Avenues that steal our affections from the only God who is worthy of supreme affection, total adoration. I think about Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. He's described as very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. I want that to be said about me. I think about Phinehas, son of Eleazar, Numbers 25. God said, so this was God's commentary on Phinehas. God said, he was as zealous as I am for my honor. Oh, may that be the mark of our lives. Your life, my life, this church, may it be said that we were just as zealous for the honor of God as God is. In the church, this would captivate us. As we gather together, this would what's driving us. We would refuse to walk away from a worship gathering like this. Think about, how did I feel about the service today? As if the service was ultimately about how I feel. Now, what should drive us is a church. We gather together. How did God feel about the service today? The service is about Him, His glory. It's what drives zeal for Him and our families to say, in your singleness, in your marriage, with your parenting, how can your home, your personal life, family life be driven with zeal, not for the pursuits of this world, but for the glory of your God. That's a very different way to live as a single, as a married couple, as a parent in this world. In your work to say tomorrow morning, God help me today and all that I do today, I'm not about climbing a ladder, I'm about exalting your name. Everything I say, everything I think, everything I desire, help me to do it all with zeal for your name. Students at your campus to be less gripped by what people think about you and to be totally gripped by what other students think about God.
and changes the way you live. For all of us to say, God, you alone are supremely satisfying, supremely good. So I let go of anything and everything that keeps my heart from you. I let go of possessions, pursuits, pleasures, anything that keeps my heart from you. I want to live with zeal for your glory. And you say, oh, well, I don't know if I'm ready to let go of this possession, these pleasures. I don't know if I'm ready to let go of what I'm doing with my boyfriend or girlfriend. What I do over here when nobody else is looking. I don't know if I'm ready to reprioritize how I spend my money. I don't know if I'm ready to reorient like everything about how I live my life. And if that thought, any of those thoughts comes to your mind, hear this second exhortation. Don't miss it. Because God is jealous, I exhort you. Live with zeal for your good. Live with zeal for your good. You say, wait, wait, my good? I thought I was supposed to live for God's glory, not my good. This is where we realize your greatest good is found in living for God's greatest glory. Like they go together. Think about it. Think about it. You actually think sexual immorality satisfies? You have no idea. And in that moment of fading pleasure, you're turning aside from unfading treasure. You're not living for your good, your pleasure. Like, do you think that's pleasure? There's so much more pleasure God's designed for you. You, you think it's spending your money to indulge in more and more comforts in this world is satisfying? You have no idea the indescribable joy you're missing out on when it comes to sacrificial giving. You're not living with zeal for your good. You're living with zeal for your bad. C.S. Lewis said it best. He said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy has been offered to us like ignorant children who go on making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And he says these piercing words. He says, we are far too easily pleased. In other words, we think, we actually think, we've convinced ourselves, we give in to the temptations, things, run after the things of this world, and because our desires are so strong, we want so much satisfaction, we just can't. No, 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 that's not true. We run after things of this world because our desires are too weak. Because it takes so little to satisfy us. We're like ignorant children making mud pies in the slum when God has given us holiday at the sea. He is supremely satisfying. He has more good than anything this world could ever offer us. So let's be smart and let's be satisfied in Him. Let's not buy the lies of this world that this is what satisfies. It doesn't satisfy. It kills. It destroys. That's the whole picture in Psalm 79. He alone gives life. So when let's trust in him. He's supremely satisfying. So start living with zeal for your good. Where will you find good? 
you'll find good and living with zeal for God. God, just let us soak in. He loves you so much. This is such good news. It's jealousy. He loves you so much. God loves you right where you're sitting with a jealous love, an altogether right and holy jealous love. He's jealous for your affections and he's worthy of them because he's the only one who can satisfy to you. So I implore you, run from sin. Reorient your life, your family, your work, your priorities, possessions, everything you do have around zeal for his glory. And in the process, you will begin to realize you are living with zeal for your good. So here's what I want to do. I, in just a moment, I want to pray for us. And then we're going to stand here to other campuses. Uh, people can start coming out to lead us to celebrate the greatness of God's love for us. And when we stand and we sing about his love, uh, if you've never trusted in Jesus to forgive you of your sins, I invite you to do that today, even while we're singing this, to say, yes, yes, I put my faith in you. I'm ready to turn aside from my sin, myself. I want to trust in you. I want to follow you as Lord. I invite you to do that. As we're singing, and then for all who have, for all who know Jesus, you know his love, I implore you, as we're singing, just repent of any ways you are not worshiping, honoring, glorifying God. Let go of the things of this world you are running after instead of him. And as you repent to realize that despite your sin and wandering, he loves you so much. Jesus has paid for that sin and he has made the way for you to enjoy God.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.